0: the bright idea that I wanted to coach my kids' soccer team. I guess my dad coached my teams growing up, so I thought, I'd like to do that at least once. My kids are getting older. I have two boys. They're nine and six. So I figured I'd probably be a little easier with the younger ones, so that's what I'm doing. I am coaching six- and seven-year-old boys' soccer team. And I guess I just had visions of the joy of coaching and kids seamlessly working together. I don't know who came up with the phrase herding cats, but I'm pretty sure it was a boys soccer coach. Because I got, I got kids going every which way. I got kids on defense that are going up trying to score. I got kids on offense that are standing back next to the goalie. I got one kid that just stands in the same spot and waves at his dad and maybe watches the birds go overhead. And that's about all I get out of him. Everybody wants to do their own thing. And while I might envision for my team maybe the harmonious unity of, Thrivers all line dancing together, which we're all going to be doing on Thursday night. Instead, what I get is a little more like like the Iwana circle out there. Everybody's going in different directions. But I, I persevere in this because my goal as a coach is to get everybody working together as a team. Because if kids try to do it themselves, and i got plenty of kids that do this, they dribble up all by themselves, and they'll run into three defenders and trip over the ball and dribble it out of bounds. It does not work. But if each part does its job. If the defenders take, step up and steal the ball and pass to the midfielders, and the midfielders dribble down the sideline, center to the forwards, and the forwards score a goal, which happened once, hey, that's a great thing. You've got to have teamwork. This is a team sport, and you've got to work together to be successful. In the same way, if you try to live this Christian life on your own, it's not going to work. We are designed to live together with other Christians, we are part of the same team. Or as the analogy is often used in the Bible, we're one body. We got eyes, we got ears, we got hands, we got feet. Everybody's got a specific job to do. We got to work together. We are part of God's family. We are part of God's team. We've got to be unified in this. Try to live your life on your own without the support of others. You're going to fail. We need to start living our life as God's designed us to live as a family and as a team. And that means you're going to have to start setting your own interests, set your own desires aside and do what's best for the team. And that means you're going to have to work hard to promote unity in the body of Christ. So that's our topic tonight. Let's go ahead and turn to our passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. If you think about where we've been, we've been flying through the book of Ephesians going one chapter at a time. We're now halfway through the book. It's mid-October. We're halfway through. We're going to slow down a little bit now because we're going to get to the back half of Ephesians, which is the more practical part of the book. We're going to cover just six verses tonight. First six verses of Ephesians chapter four. Let's go ahead and read that. Ephesians four, one through six. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord and in all. Look back at the beginning of that passage. It starts with a very, very important word. It starts with the word therefore. And if you remember your elementary school days, when you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it? What is it there for? It is there to connect the first half of the book to the back half, to the practical application, the theological foundation to the practical application. Paul is basically saying everything that we've talked about so far in the book of Ephesians, the the call and election of God, how how we're reconciled to God to one body. We've got a new... New, new identity in Christ. Everything we've covered. Well, now, now what am I supposed to do about it? And Paul's got something to say. He says in verse middle of verse one, he says, I urge you. Urge, this word, it's a powerful word. He said, Urge, you know this is something that's important. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, what's your calling? Again, it's everything that we've discussed so far in the first three chapters. When you see words like urge, you see words like calling, you know that this is something important. This is a command. This is a core requirement of us as Christians. Okay, well, great. How are we supposed to live according to our calling? Well, that's the rest of the book of Ephesians. But the very first thing he gets to is you need to start living in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's right where he goes in verse 2. Living with humility and gentleness and patience and love in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the body. And remember the context here. This is a command. This is something that is not optional. When we're not called by God. We're not called to a private relationship with him. We are called to live a life among other believers. We are called to live in unity with other believers. So let's get that down to the point, and then we'll explore it a bit further. Point number one, you need to realize that unity is a requirement. Unity is how... We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This is the command. This is not optional. Paul is urging us. He's exhorting us to do this. And we'll talk a little bit later about how best we can do this, live in unity with others. But let's start tonight with just a simple acknowledgement that we are called as believers to live in unity. We are called to work, to walk side by side with other believers. And in fact, if you're not living in unity, you're not obedient to God. And you can see this uh, if you just turn back two chapters, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has already touched on this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're in chapter 4, back two chapters. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Because Paul, he's talking in this, these verses about, about unity in the church, and he's talking about Jews and Gentiles getting together, having unity, and the same principles too today. We need to have, need to have unity in the body. Look what Paul says, and this is what he's referencing in these verses. Ephesians 2, verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace, and and he has made both of us one. He's made Jews and Gentiles one. He's made all of us one in the church because he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There shouldn't be hostility among us as believers. By abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, one new body united. In the place of the two, so making peace. Well, how does he do that? Verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That's how it's done. Thereby killing the hostility. God has gone through great lengths to make us one body. And his command, his requirement is that we live like that, united as a church. And that's why fights and quarrels are such a departure from what God's called us to do. Because when we have a fight, when we have a quarrel, we have disunity. Something has broken that unity. I mean, think about the last fight you had with your spouse. I've been told from time to time husbands and wives fight. I don't know anything about that, but that's what I've heard. And think about that. If it, Last time you fought, last time you've had harsh words, did you have afterwards just this profound sense that something's just not right in your relationship? There's a, there's a disruption in the unity between a husband and a wife thought back to a few weeks ago, it was the, uh, the Wreck-It Ralph movie night, and uh, I was coming from soccer practice with my six-year-old, and my wife, she was sick. she wasn't at the retreat, so she was coming with the other kid. We met here at church, and this is just mass chaos, people everywhere, kids bouncing off the walls, candy everywhere, and uh, I don't know what happened, but you know, it was hectic, and a couple harsh words were exchanged, and then she left, just like that. But I felt it right afterwards. You know what? Something is not right here. I had all the excuses in the world of why I thought what I said was right. But when it got right down to it, our unity in marriage had been damaged. Our relationship was not right, and it had to be fixed. And it needed to be fixed right away. And I looked up at the movie screen, and I thought, well, shoot, if Rick it Ralph and Fix it Felix can reconcile, well, then so can we. And I texted her right away, and I apologized. I did not let time go by. And we in the church need to commit to doing the same thing. If you've got an issue, if you've got a, a quarrel with someone, don't let time go by. Fix it right away. Live in unity with others. This is a requirement of God. This is a command of God. Let's take this seriously. Okay. Unity is command. I got it. But I got a question. So how do, how do I actually do this? How do I make sure that I'm building? How do I make sure that I'm fostering unity in my relationships? i will tell you how to do that. You need to start considering them. Consider their interests first. It's natural for us to put ourselves first. That's who we are at our core. We are, we're, we're sinful. We are selfish, self-centered people. So you're going to have to fight that instinct. You're going to have to fight your most basic selfish instincts and put others first. I mean, you're going to have to work hard at this. This has become abundantly clear to me in my burgeoning coaching career here because when I'm coaching a soccer game, The absolute most natural thing for me to do is to do what I've done with all my kids' soccer games up to this point in time, is to watch my own kid. That's what I do. I watch my kids. So now I'm a coach, and and I'm just drawn to watching my own kid, giving him pointers, teaching him what to do. And I realize, the coach, you know what? That's not the best thing for the team. What I need to do is do what's best for the team, give everybody pointers. I need to be the coach of the whole team. So what I have to consciously do is set aside my own Desire, set aside my own wishes and do what's best for the team. That's difficult to do, so I've got to work hard at it. If we as Christians are going to do the same thing, if we're going to live in unity with one another, we're going to have to work hard at this as well. So let's get this down on the outline. Point number two, we need to work hard at unity. You need to work hard to put others first. This is something that doesn't come natural to us. So we're going to have to work hard at this. What do I do? Well, the great thing about our passage tonight is we get right into it in verse 2, lists four things, four qualities, four traits that will enhance our unity and our relationships. Four things that if we work hard at them, it's going to help us live more effectively for one another. Four things in this verse, and we'll go through each of them in turn, for pointy finger lovers. I've got pointy fingers on the outline here. The first one is humility. You've got to work hard at humility if you're going to have unity in the body. And it's listed first, I think, because hu- humility does so much to drive unity in our relationships. What, is, what does humility mean? Paul gives a great definition of this in uh, Romans chapter 12. I put it on the screen behind me here. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, because if you're thinking too much of yourself, you're not thinking of others, and that's going to cause division. Few things are as destructive to unity than a lack of humility. Few things are as destructive to humility or to unity than, than pride and then self-centeredness. I think of my boss at work. I work at El Puey Loco. For those of you that don't know, marketing department there, and my boss is uh he's a, he's a can be an okay guy at times, I guess, and occasionally he'll want to do nice things for the group. But the problem is he's, he's from New Jersey, so he doesn't really have a lot of experience with nice things. And, and he doesn't know what to do, because if he wants to improve morale in the group, he's got one solution. let go out to lunch for hot dogs. The guy, that's what, the guy loves hot dogs. Now this is, this is the head of the marketing department at the Mexican restaurant, there's a guy from New Jersey that loves hot dogs, that's what he does. I don't know how this happened, that's what we've got, that's what he does, we're feeling down guys, hey, let's go get some hot dogs, hey, you guys, you've been working hard over here, let's go get some hot dogs, healthy guy, it's, it's your birthday today, I'm going to get you some hot dogs, literally, that's what he did, <laughs> and I think, honestly, he thinks he's doing something for the group, but reality, when you peel it back, he's only really thinking of himself, never occurs to him, maybe healthy guy doesn't want hot dogs for lunch, and the very thing that he does to drive morale and drive unity in the group actually causes division. Who are you? You're just doing your own thing. I don't want hot dogs. And it just shows you how dangerous self-centeredness, how dangerous pride is to unity in a group. And it's so common out there, many of us never even see it, but it's destroying our unity. And it could be something simple. I don't know. You look at the thrive here. You walk in at 6 o'clock, and what do you see? You see a bunch of seats saved. I've got to make sure I'm sitting with my, my friends, with my group, and new couples sitting over there by themselves got to start setting your own interests aside. I got free time. Well, I don't have time to help someone move. I don't have time to bring them a meal. If you're living with others, if you're living with humility, you got to always be thinking of others, not thinking of yourself. And this is a fundamental change. You got to understand how fundamentally different this this is that that God has called you to be. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Great passage on, on humility. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how do I do that? Well, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Jesus did, setting aside his life, dying on the cross for our sins. We've got to commit to following Jesus' example. We've got to commit to thinking of ourselves less and start taking the needs of others a lot more seriously. That's humility. But there's a second trait listed in our verse, and that is gentleness got to work hard at gentleness. It's a trait that's often translated meekness. Basically, it's the opposite of rudeness, the opposite of harshness. Now, when a lot of us, though, when we hear meek, we think weakness. But that's not what the word means. The word has this connotation of, of power, but having it under control. Jesus was called gentle and meek. He had great power, but he kept it under control. If you want to have gentleness, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to have control in dealing with others. You've got to keep your emotions under control, not letting him get the best of you, not being rude, not being harsh, but gentle and tender, keeping things under control. When I coach my son on the soccer team, he's, poor guy. so small, he's like half the size of, of other players on the team. And I mean literally half the size. He's like 40 pounds, and there's, i got players that are like 80 pounds. And, and he holds his own, but he's a bit nervous around the big kids. And if he makes a mistake, I don't scream at him. I don't yell at him. That's not going to be helpful to him in that context. I instruct him, sure, but I do it gently. I do it in a caring way. Think how important this is, even in your marriage. We all live this, right? Come home from work, long day, you're exhausted, you're tired. How do you deal with your wife? Are you short with her? Are you harsh with her? Kids have been crazy all day long. You're at your wit's end. You get annoyed at your husband? You're rude to him? you have a disagreement, what do you do? Do you yell, do you scream, or do you calmly and do you gently discuss? So important, gentleness in a marriage. Well, guess what? The same exact attitude is just as important in your relationships in the church. Do you fly off the handle at people, or are you gentle? Do you have that gentleness to to take a friend that's maybe going through a trial? Do you take them aside, you grab dinner or coffee with them, let them pour out their soul to you, and you pray with them? Do you have that gentleness you have that gentleness that if you're wrong, you keep your emotions under control. Maybe you, you go seek reconciliation, not go seek revenge. You have the gentleness that, that corrects someone but does it in a loving and a supportive way. You've got to take time to be gentle. You've got to take time to be caring about the thoughts and the feelings of others. But there's a third trait here that's so important when you're talking about unity, and that is patience. If we're going to live together, with others. You've got to understand how important patience is. Because just as God is patient with us, with the mistakes that we make every single day, we've got to be patient with others. Literally, the word here means long-suffering. You've got to be patiently living with the faults and with the sin of others, knowing why, that God is patient with us. How well does your marriage work without patience? Not that Well, not going to work in the church without patience either. And there's a fourth trait that's very, very closely linked with patience, and that trait is love. See that listed at the bottom of verse 2 there. And love, the the Greek here is is agape love. This is the highest form of love. This is self-sacrificing love. But I think it's really interesting the way it's put in verse 2 here. It doesn't just say love. It says, bearing with one another in love bearing with one another, the idea is that you're looking past the faults, the quirks of others, and you love them anyways. Let's face it, we all have things that irritate us, right? Even our lovely spouse sitting right next to us, let's be honest, there's, there's things about them that, that irritate you, is there not? And I hate to break it to you, the reverse is true. There's things about you that irritate them, and whether it's putting the knives in the dishwasher pointed up or putting the orange juice back in the fridge with like one nanometer left in it. And the question is, how do you respond to that? Do you bear with one another in love? If you know me, you know I'm, I'm the type of person that, uh, uh, let's be honest here, I, I like to clean up. I want things organized. And my poor wife, I must be miserable to live with. Because right? I'm always, hey, what's this shirt doing here? Can we throw away this food here? It's constant. And it'll drive anybody nuts. But my wife, she's long-suffering. She bears up with me. And I get, organizers get a bad rap because we're always blamed when anything's ever lost. Not always our fault, but that's not the point. Sorry, That wasn't in the notes. It's what my wife does because I'm her husband. I'm family. And you know what? Our marriage is a lot more unified as a result because she bears with me in love. Think about those great words you said to your spouse at your wedding. What did you say? Was it In sickness and in health, in better and worse. You still mean that today when you're tired, when they're irritating you? When it's hard, you have to decide to love them. And Paul's saying the exact same thing is here is true in the church. You've got to love your brothers and sisters in Christ in that same patient, in that same sacrificial way. And if you can do these four things, if you have humility and gentleness, patience, and love, you're going to be unified as a church body. And the great thing is we don't even need to create that unity it is already there. Look back at verse, let's look back at verse 3. It says, eager to create the unity of the spirit. You see that? Underline create there. You see that? What does it say? Maintain. God has already put it there. All we need to do is maintain it. But it's, it's not going to come naturally. We've got to work at it. This is self-sacrificing. That's why verse 3 says eager. You've got to be eager about it. A lot of translations say you've got to make every effort at it. You got to be working at unity. That means you got to find ways each and every way to display these characteristics. That means you should start every day praying to God God, show me how can I be patient? How can I show love? How can I show humility? How can I show gentleness in my relationships? You got to be praying that every day. And then you got to go out in your day and you got to be looking, actively looking for the opportunities that God gives you, taking advantage of them. You need to work hard at unity. Work hard at it. You might say, okay, we've been discussing how hard all of this really is. How it's going to go against our nature to be so, so self-sacrificial, to have the unity that's required. But I got good news for you. Verses 4 through 6 are going to help us out here a little bit because these verses are going to list a whole bunch of things that we share in common with other believers. Let's look at them again. Verse 4 through 6 it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. We are all part of the same family here. And it's helpful to know, isn't it? We're not strangers. We're brothers and we're sisters in Christ. We're family. We have so much in common. And that could be a strength. That can be an advantage as we live out our Christian relationships. But we have got to strengthen those relationships. We have got to deepen those relationships. So point number three on your outline, we need to invest in your family. You want to have unity in the family? You have got to invest. Before we talk about investing, because we're going to get there, first I want you to appreciate how much we really do have in common with one another. I mean, as you look at these verses, you're going to see seven things that all start with the word one, one faith, one Lord, seven things that all start with the word one. And really, that's what unity means. Unity means a state of oneness. The same Greek word feeds one in unity. That's what unity is all about. So we need a little graph. I'm going to put it on the uh, screen behind me. And you're going to see, hopefully, how all this builds to unity that we have as believers. Let's look again through these three verses, starting out with first, there is one body. There's one body. We're all part of one universal church. And we're all here tonight as part of the local church, which is really just an extension of that universal church, as God commanded us to do. We got one body. And beyond that, we got one spirit. In Paul's day, people were chasing after all sorts of different spirits. They thought there were all sorts of them, not us. We got, we got one spirit. We got the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. We belong to one another in the Lord. We got one spirit, and we got one hope, got one hope in the return of the lord and we look forward to that with eager expectation one day when all creation is going to bow before christ and every rebellious thought and every rebellious attitude and every rebellious person is going to bow under the headship of the son and we're going to live with him forever that is our hope and just think about it i don't know a million years from now a million years when everything in this life that you hold so dear your job, your family, your reputation, it's all just going to be a fuzzy memory. You're going to think back and go, oh, what was that place we used to live? It was Apple County, something like that. I don't know. And then you're going to walk down the streets of the New Jerusalem, and you go, hey, Joe, <laughs> from my Thrive Small Group, how are you doing, buddy? Good to see you a million years from now. The people sitting here in this room tonight, you will live with them for eternity, I mean, there's this sense of joy. There's a sense of unity that should bring us together. It's a sense of unity that the world will never understand. We have one hope. And beyond that, we got one Lord, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Again, the world's got all sorts of things that thinks it's Lord, right? Kids and jobs and family and money and respect. The world is running all sorts of different directions. Not us. We got one Lord, Jesus Christ. We're all serving the same Lord. How can we not have unity? How can we not be living together and getting along? We got one Lord. We got one faith. One settled body of truth. We got seven things listed here in these verses and those things aren't even comprehensive. We got things beyond that, things like the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection, forgiveness of sins. We have unity. We all agree on these things. And sure there's some minor disagreements here and there, but we've got unity in the faith. Verse goes on, verse 5, one baptism. Likely water baptism Paul's talking about here, but it harkens back to the spiritual baptism that it symbolizes. The point here is we are all going through the same outward sign, showing showing the world that we are united in Christ. You are united with other believers. We've got one baptism. And finally, we've got one God. Verse 6 says, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all, and in all, we've got one God who's sovereign over all things. And he works through all things, accomplishing his purposes in us. And he dwells in all of us through his spirit. We've got an intimate relationship with him. I mean, look at that list. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The unity we have as Christians is far deeper than anything else out there. So much in common now. So much in common for eternity. And we all feel it, don't we? Think about the relationships, the friendships you have with other Christians versus those you have with non-Christians. How much deeper, how much more significant are those relationships with other Christians? And while we, as Christians, we have so much in common, the world's moving away from us with each passing year. And it's moving away from us fast. I used to worry what kind of world my kids and my grandkids would grow up in, and what kind of persecution they'd face decades from now. Folks, this is not decades away. This is happening now. This whole moral revolution that's going on is just radically changing everything at a pace no one expected. It's just seven years ago. I had to look this up. It was just seven years ago that the liberal state of California voted to define marriage between a man and a woman. That was just seven years ago. It's just you don't have to go back more than two or three years, where most politicians of either side of the aisle were against same-sex marriage, and now blink of an eye, it's everywhere. And not only that, you got people, you got owners, owners of bakeries that are refusing to serve cake at a gay wedding, and they're they're getting sued. They might be getting tossed in jail. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There was an article in the New York Times recently talked about this event planner over in New York City, and this event planner refused to do business with. A Christian organization. I'm not going to do it. And here's why: this is this is a direct quote. It said they were very anti-LGBT, and I found that very unnerving. So they just refused to do business with them. And guess what? Nobody had an issue with that. The issue if the if the bakery doesn't serve cake at a at a gay wedding, even if they're serving them in their store, that's an issue. But they're not even serving the the Christians at all because because of that issue, and nobody cares. I and mean, we're at a point where the logic doesn't even make sense anymore. Persecution is coming, folks. And how are you going to stand in the face of it when it comes for you? And if you're living for God, it will come for you. The lion attacks the sheep that's standing all off by itself. First Peter tells us we've got an enemy that, that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You've got to band together. We have got to stand together as Christians. You try to face it alone, we're going to fail. There's strength There's strength in relationships. There's strength in brothers and sisters in Christ standing together. We have got to invest in that family. Put Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 on the screen. This is a great verse. It says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as, some is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This should be a description of us a Thrive, spurring one another on, meeting together, and more and more as you see the day approaching. You've got to be investing in our Christian relationships. The best friends you have on this planet should be your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You need to take advantage of Compass Bible Church, you need to take advantage of Thrive. This room, People in this room tonight, this is the gift of God. This is a resource for you, your small group. You got to be hanging out with them every single chance you get. Thursday nights, accountabilities, you name it. We got Thrive Ministries. We need people. We still need people to help serving food each Thursday night. We still need people working back in the tech booth. Ah, a chance to serve my family? You bet. Someone needs to go to Partners. I'm there. I'll take somebody through Partners. Thrive Hoedown on Saturday or Sunday night hanging out with my Christian friends, developing relationships, I'm there. There is nothing better than that. There should be nothing that keeps you from investing in your family. Because the more unified we are, the more we'll be able to stand against the enemy. And as Jesus said to Peter, speaking of the church, the gates of hell will not be able to overcome us. I hesitate to use a... uh, military analogy here because I don't know anything about the military, but I'm going to do it anyways. Because I know one thing. I know one thing. That if you're, a, know, if you're a squadron commander over in Iraq, there's one thing that you're not going to do. You've got an objective across town. The one thing you're not going to do, you're not going to send one guy. You don't do it. Why? Because there's power, there's strength, there's safety in numbers. Because you're going you're to go behind enemy lines. It's imperative that you work together. That's why soldiers do this. That's why they train together. That's why they go on missions together. Folks, we've got to wake up to the fact that we're living behind enemy lines. You try to do this life on your own, you're going to fail. It's imperative that we operate as a team. We've got to first realize unity. It's a requirement. This is a command of our of our, of our commanding officer. It's the order of our commanding officer. Second, we've got we to work hard. Work hard at unity. we got to painstakingly develop things like patience and love and gentleness and humility. And third, got to invest in our family. Every chance we get not neglecting meeting together but doing so more and more. Appreciating the gift that God's given us in one, one another. So much in common. One faith. One Lord. One hope. Let's start living as God's designed us to live. Let's start living as a family. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for these hopefully really encouraging words. Encouraging words to know that we have a gift in one another. We have a resource. We have strength in relationships, Lord. You've given us uh, an amazing church at Compass Bible Church. You've given us a great group here in Thrive in small groups. And I just pray that every one of these couples here tonight can uh, really understand the, the blessings that we have in one another and really understand the importance of investing, of not trying to live this life on our own, not trying to get um, get things accomplished you know, through our own strength, but relying on you and relying on one another help us just to live the kind of life you've designed us to live, live as a family. And I just pray for the small group time tonight that you, uh, you give everyone wisdom and insight how we can best, um, best really incorporate this in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.